Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church with your Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. But I'm super stoked to be with all you guys today. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Toward the back of your Bible, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay because we have the words on the screen, but i like you to have it with you so you can follow along. Now, the title of this sermon is, It's About Faith, Bro. And you're wondering, like, why did you call it that? Well, because when I read Galatians 3, and I'm like, what is this chapter about? It hit me. It's about faith, bro. So that's why I decided to call it this title. Because the reason why is the word faith is mentioned 11 times in this chapter. 11 times. So when you have a word that's mentioned 11 times in the length of the chapter that we have, it's probably about that word. And so that's why I called this message, It's About Faith, Bro. But also, I need you to understand that. It's really important. Do you remember a few weeks ago we talked about how you got to have an elevator speech? You know, the elevator speech, right? It's like this little succinct thing that you could say to somebody who asks you a question about your product, your business, your idea, or whatever, and the time that it takes for you to ride with them on an elevator from the ground floor up to whatever floor you're going to. And we said that in Phoenix, it's even more important because the buildings aren't that tall. So you don't have that far to go. And so you have to really get a pretty succinct, right? So the whole concept of an elevator speech, if someone asks you about Christianity, can you get into it and say it succinctly and clearly without adding all these extraneous things? So by the time the little thing goes ding and the person walks off, they have a clear message from you. And so this is kind of the same thing, right? So if I got in the elevator with you and I said, hey, how do I get right with God? It's about faith, bro. Pretty simple, right? Or if I were to ask you the question, what do I have to do to get into heaven? It's about faith, bro. Or how do I get forgiveness? How do I know that all the sins I've committed in the past can be finally separated for me so I don't have to continue walking in them and bearing them and living with them and beating myself up about them over and over and over again and worried that I may be eternally penalized because of them? It's about faith, Bro, it's not that hard. Faith, by the way, in contrast to works. Faith in contrast to a list of do's and don'ts and boxes that you are checking off and you're never exactly sure if you're doing all of them and you think probably God's default state is he is mad at you because you're not doing everything right. And so your alternative then is just to say, I'd rather not deal with it. And that's why places like this become places filled with guilt and shame and frustration for people. But we want to have faith It is about faith in a God who has done for you what you could not do for yourself, raised you to new life, taken away your sin, and given you an eternal inheritance in heaven that can never be taken away or revoked. And so the problem is we slip 
we slip back into the old way of thinking. We slip back into thinking that God has got this little checklist and we are far behind. We slip back into this thinking that we can save ourselves if we're just good enough, that we can justify ourselves, and that God will be impressed with how great we are rather than we ourselves spending our lives being impressed with how great and merciful and gracious he is. And so that's where these people were that the apostle Paul is writing to in Galatians. They had slipped back into a primitive way of thinking. They had slipped back into a way of thinking where the list of do's and don'ts was going to somehow make them righteous and worthy and good enough for God. And so he has to kind of hit him upside the head. You know, and you have to do that once in a while, with, especially with people with strong personalities. Like, I'm kind of one of these guys, like, I don't get it until it's like, bam, hit me right across the head. So the language here is going to be like a little bit of like a sock in the face. But understand, he's trying to really make a point that you guys have forgotten that it's about faith, bro. It's not about all your works. And so you'll see that as we read this, starting with verse one, where he says this. Oh, foolish Galatians. That basically means, you idiots. It does. It's in, the, it's in the original language. Who has bewitched you? Who has cast a spell on you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Now he's being kind of sarcastic. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law? or by hearing with faith, right? There's that word. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, all these great things that have happened, all that God has done for you in this, this whole thing that's happened, did it happen because you did a bunch of good works or did it happen because you placed your faith in a God who's done so much for you, right? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Huge line, Hold that line in your mind for a while because we're going to come back to that concept. And if you're a little confused, it's okay. But Abraham believed God. He didn't do a bunch of good works. He believed God and God counted that to him as being made right with him. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But if, I were, if you were to say to me, hey, it's about faith, bro. I might ask, well, why is it about faith? Why is faith necessary and all these other good works are not necessary? Well, I was told you got to be a good person in order to go to heaven. I was told you got to do a bunch of good deeds so God will accept you. Why is it about faith, bro? Well, let me give you four reasons that this passage spells out very clearly. Number one, it's about faith, bro, because the law will always make you guilty. The law always makes you guilty. Look at verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. All things. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by what? 
faith. There it is. The righteous shall live by faith, not by works. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Now you say, okay, well, that, what, what exactly is he trying to say? Well, here's what's happening here. He's saying, look, if you think that you are going to get right with God by adhering to a set of rules and regulations, you're never gonna be able to do it because by breaking one of them, that automatically makes you a lawbreaker. And no one likes to be known as a lawbreaker. If someone were to ask you, you know, what do you do in your spare time? You say, I'm a lawbreaker. That's not a good thing, right? That's not going to a good thing to put down as a, on your resume or as a job interview. But the truth of the matter is, what he's saying is, if you try to justify yourself by showing how good you are based on a moral code, the moral code will actually show that you are not good. If you try to appeal to a set of standards proving you are righteous, that set of standards will show that you are unrighteous. Because if you violate just one of them, just one, then you have violated the code and you are a lawbreaker. And what he's trying to get across is the Mosaic law or the 10 commandments were never designed to save you. They cannot save you. All they can do is reveal how, how far you are away from actually doing them. Huge revelation for us. And this is exactly what he's saying. So if you appeal to a moral code to show you are worthy of heaven, that moral code will actually show that you're unworthy of heaven because you and I can't do it. Now we kind of know this deep down inside, but here is what we do. We say, look, I know I'm not very good at this area of, of um, holiness or goodness or rightness. You know, I, I do these things over here. However, over here, I'm really good. And so while I may be breaking the rules over here, I follow the rules over here. So on balance, I'm okay. But let's think through the logic of that for just a moment. Let's say that you're at the grocery store and you got all of your food and you're at the checkout counter and you're ready to um, pay the bill and or on your little card and they have one of these deals like they have now where they say, hey, listen, would you like to round up your bill to the next dollar so you can help the children? And there's a little picture of the children right there looking at you like, please help us, right? And you're like, ah. And you have your bill and you know, if you just round it up a little bit, you could round it and you could, and you could help the children. And you're like, you know what? I'll go ahead and do that. So you hit the button and you round up your bill to the next dollar so that you can help the children. And you actually feel pretty good about yourself at this moment because you helped the children. You're like, I helped the children. And there they are, the little picture. And you could almost see them winking at you like, you helped me, right? And so you help the children, and as you're walking out into the parking lot, thinking about how much you've helped the children, you've spent so much time kind of mentally processing the wonder of that that you forgot that you actually have to pick up and help your own child, and you're late, right? So you're like, I have to go pick up my own kid. So you get all your groceries in the car, and you're like, shoot, I've been thinking about other people's kids. I got to pick up my own kids. So you get on the freeway, and you start driving kind of fast. And then, you know, let's say you start going, you're going 85 miles an hour on the 10, which by the way, in my mind, is only about three miles an hour faster than what the speed limit should be. <laughs> but it's about 20 miles an hour faster than what the speed limit actually is. 
And you know this, but you don't care because you're late. So you're driving down the freeway. Now, have you ever been on the 10 out by like Citrus and Perryville over here? You know who likes to hang out over there a lot? <laughs> our friends. We love our, we love our DPS officers and our police officers and everything else, right? But they like to spend a fair amount of time hanging out by there. So you go by like a rocket, right? And they come and they get you. And they got the little lights and siren and they pull you over and the officer comes up to your window. And um, I know this line, I have it memorized because it's been asked to me so many times. <laughs> Do you know how fast you were going? Which is kind of a trick question. So my line is always, you know, I was probably going a little fast. <laughs> that's what I, the 10 times that that's happened, that's what I've said. And <clears throat> <laughs> so, so, uh, so what, so, but by the way, when you say that it's instant guilt, you're admitting right there, I was going fast. You are guilty. So you say this to the officer and the officer says, look, you're going 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. This isn't even a question. You have broken the law. You are a lawbreaker. Therefore, you are going to get a ticket, which is by the way, a hundred percent valid and fair and just and right. And you deserve it. So let's say that the officer says they're going to give you a ticket. And then you say, now, can you imagine for a second, if you said, but officer, you don't understand. I was just back at the store and I rounded up my bill to the next dollar. <laughs> and I did it for the children. I did it because I wanted to help the children. Do you understand, officer? I helped the children. <laughs> now, if you said that to the officer, do you know what's going to happen? I'll tell you what's going to happen. You're going to get the field sobriety test. <laughs> You're going to be like walking on the imaginary line with your hand on your nose, right? That's in the middle of, that's what's going to happen to you. Because anyone that would use the fact that you grounded up your bill to the next dollar as an excuse for going 20 miles over the speed limit is certifiably insane. But that's what you and I do all the time when it comes to God. Well, you know, God, listen, I, I know I sleep around like probably more than I should, but I'm really kind to animals. <laughs> I love our furry friends. I mean, come on, God, what would you rather have? Would you rather have me not sleep around, but then, you know, run over cats with my car? No way. Well, maybe, I don't know, maybe that wouldn't be so bad, actually. Um, no, I'm joking. Um, we love, our, we love our cat lovers and cats here at this church. But you see what I'm saying? We take rules over here that we know that we're violating and then some other arbitrary rule that we're following and we put them together and we make this thing up in our own mind to justify ourselves. And Paul's going, you cannot do that. It doesn't work that way. It's insanity. You will never have the righteousness that it takes. And every police officer out there knows that. If you try to justify Justify your good behavior by how you follow all of the rules of the road. You will be a failure every single time. Listen to what John Stott says. This is a great quote. He says, the purpose of the law, all of the Old Testament laws, the Ten Commandments, and all of the sub-laws that go along with it, right? 
was to lift the lid off of man's respectability and disclose what he really is underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the judgment of God and helpless to save himself. And that just doesn't count for all of the bad people in the world. That's the most righteous person you can think of. Even your nice little grandma who used to make little apple pies and tortillas and whatever else. And oh, little grandma, she never heard a fly. It applies to her too. It's true. And so if the law then doesn't make us righteous, if you cannot ever justify yourself, then what hope do we have? What is our hope that we could ever have any kind of peace and be made right with God? Well, he tells us in the next verse, and that's the second reason it's all about faith, bro, because Jesus stood in our place. And now you're starting to get the hint. It ain't about you, dude. It's about Jesus. That's the focus of our attention. We don't sit there and put the mirror up to ourselves and celebrate how great we are. No, we realize how short we fall of God's standards and then we stand in awe of Jesus. So look at verse 13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. So this is crazy. God looks at us and goes, man, they're a bunch of lawbreakers. (laughs) Like these people have no shot. Like they have no shot. So he sends his son who becomes a law breaker for us. He never himself breaks the law, but as far as the father is concerned, he takes on what we have done and wears it as though it is his. Crazy. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he doesn't say he like, um, you know, took our sins, but he says he became sin. So when the father sees his son, he sees sin on the cross. That's crazy. Because that's what it took. So he became a curse for us. I mean, that's crazy. Like the, the son of God became a curse for us in our place, right? For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, why does it say Gentiles there? Well, because, you know, there were Jews and there were Gentiles, and the Jews were the ones who kind of owned the Old Testament, all the laws and everything else. And they were seeing all these non-Jewish people, mostly you and I, right, coming into the church and like, hey, it's great that you guys are getting into, like, Jesus, but he was a Jew, and if you really want to be part of the club, you got to get circumcised and, you know, eat all this kind of, you know, kosher stuff. And and Paul's like, no, 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 that's following the law and the law can't save you. If you're trying to do that, if you're trying to follow these Jewish laws in order that you can actually be saved, the law was never intended to save you. We already established that. Who who saves you? Jesus. So you're actually saved, but you're actually a Gentile. You're a son and daughter of Abraham. Now this, now hang on to that because it's really important. And you're actually saved through faith. Because Abraham was, remember a while ago it said Abraham believed God? Abraham's like, I'm not the greatest person, but if you say you have a promised inheritance where you're going to make a nation out of me and you're going to rescue me and you're going to take me home to heaven and you're going to call me righteous, you're going to call me, you're going to make me right with you. I can't make myself right with you. You can make me right with you. I believe that. God goes, cool, we're good. We're good. That same faith, when you have that, that's the thing. The faith in the promise, that's what saves you. Your your works can never do it. You always fail. 
So this is the essence of our whole message. It is the most beautiful doctrine or belief that we have. By the way, if you want to get real technical, and I didn't say this in the other services, but it's called substitutionary atonement. Ooh, big word. Substitute meaning you have a substitute. Like in school, you have a substitute. Usually that's not, you know, sometimes it's fun because you could do whatever you want, but then sometimes it's like, ah, I wish I had my real teacher or whatever. But you have a substitute. Someone stands in your place. Someone's taking the place of that person. So a substitute atonement. So, 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 so the atonement being made right with God, atonement's being made right with, right? So I'm made right with God through a substitute. Jesus stood in my place where I should be. It's a beautiful doctrine, a beautiful idea. One guy, one old guy said it this way in a poem. We may not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear, but we believe it was for us. He hung and suffered there. I think about it, that's, that's cool, that's cool. And then it goes on. A little old English, but track with me. If thou my pardon hast secured and freely in my space endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first from my bleeding surety's hand and then again from mine. Powerful. See, he gets it, he gets it. He's saying, look, if Jesus paid for all of my sins on the cross as my substitute, then God cannot demand that I pay for it again. And that should be radically liberating to those of you who for some reason, you believe that Jesus died for your sins completely, but somehow God's gonna still hold you accountable for them. How could he do that? He won't demand it twice. It's already been paid in full. That's the whole core of our message. That's what he's saying. Jesus became a curse for us so that we could be ch children. All we, have, we, all we have to do now is be children of faith. We just believe in that. We don't, be, we don't believe it and then go, oh no, now we've got to do a whole bunch of things or we're going to get kicked out. It doesn't make any sense. So that's the third reason that it's all about faith, bro. It's because it was always about faith from the very beginning. Track with me here. We're going to do a lot of Bible reading in this sermon, which is kind of a good thing because this is church, right? So we should probably read the Bible a lot, maybe more than we've read it in a while, right? In, in, in terms of our given week, right? So let's read this passage and we'll talk about what it means. He says, to give a human example, brothers and sisters, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. So in other words, when you make a covenant and a, a promise, you cannot, in that culture, you could not change it. Nothing could, could break it apart. So God makes a covenant with Abraham. You're like, that, he cannot go back on that, right? Even when two people, he's like, you know, listen, we know in our society, when there's a covenant made, you don't go back on it. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. Now, this is important. The law, the Old Testament law, Leviticus and all that stuff, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For the inherit, if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now you're going, uh, uh, uh. so to help us understand this a little bit better, I have made another drawing. Yes, I have. So let's look at this drawing here. Uh, that's just an artist's rendition of Abraham. That's not what he really looked like. 
But that's Abraham. Now you can see here from the very beginning, you were made right with God by what? Faith in the promise of, promise of an inheritance. You'd be God's child. You inherit heaven. You inherit eternal life. You inherit the, the, being a child of God forever. Your sins are taken away. You're made right with him. You reestablished. What was lost at the, at the fall in the Garden of Eden is reestablished through faith. Faith in who and what? Well, later on, you see the culmination of that faith is in Jesus. So what, what Abraham believed, said so he believed that God would, would somehow make all things right. It was a foreshadowing of Jesus. So, so Jesus was the one that paid for Abraham's sins a long time later. But as it says in the Bible, Abraham believed it and he got like a credit in his account because it hadn't happened yet. And everybody who was going to ever be made right with God was always made right with God because of that faith. It never changed. It wasn't like, well, now we're going to do a system of laws and rules and regulations. So what he's saying is 430 years later when Moses came along, then that was when the law that showed up. So 430 years, but that was a separate thing, right? There was a reason for the law. Now there's Moses. Those aren't tombstones, by the way. It's not like he's dead there with his wife. Those are tablets, the, you know, the Ten Commandments, right? Coming down the mountain, Ten Commandments. Somebody said, oh, you only put little four squiggly lines in each one. There should be five. Like I was leaving out two commandments. Um, people are weird. But it's the Ten Commandments. That's all it is, right? So that's, Mo that's the law of Moses. The law of Moses was never meant to replace faith, you guys. Oh, you have faith. Well, now you're supposed to have, now you're supposed to believe in all these and then you can justify it. It never was meant to do that. It was meant to reveal sin, like we said, to show you how unworthy we are and to guard us, and in this case, guard the Israelites. How? Well, because when you have the Ten Commandments or all, all the other rules too, things like, you know, honor your father and mother, that's a good thing for society that preserves society, that guards a culture because you take care of your old people, you know, so don't cast them aside and euthanize them. When you have things like do not commit adultery, that's good for families usually, right? If you have things like, like honor the Sabbath, so you take a day off so you don't burn yourself out and destroy yourself, that was a new thing that provided an opportunity for worship and reflection that builds and lifts and preserves and guards and instructs a society throughout the period of which God's final promise would be fulfilled of sending his son. Now, this is very important because some of us think, well, you know, first of all, there was the law and we had to do a bunch of things and then Jesus came and died for our sins and then it changed. No, it never changed. It was always about faith. Even when you go to the temple and you'd have your little goat or whatever and they'd slaughter it and they sprinkle the blood on the little altar, the goat's blood never saved you. It's goat's blood or lamb's blood. It never saved you. It was a picture of the sacrifice necessary for sins that would be fulfilled by the actual lamb of God, the son of God, and his blood spilling on the ground there, you know, when he hung on the cross. That blood was the blood that covers our sins for real. The other stuff was just a picture and a preview. Do you understand that? So it was just to show and to build, but it was never intended to actually be the thing that saves you. It was always about the promise. And that's what he's trying to say. It predates. So you're not, you're not, you and I aren't sons and daughters of Moses. We're sons and daughters of Abraham, the child and the person of promise, of faith, right? So that being said, why this is really important as well, this is the last reason it's about faith, bro. Because anyone can have faith and be in God's family. 
You see, what they were trying to do was say, listen, if you want to really be loved by God, you have to like drink our water, right? You have to come into our culture. And a lot of religions are like that. Like they require you not only to believe in the deity, but to adopt all these cultural standards and whatever else. So somehow you can earn your right. But Christianity is not like that at all. The message of Jesus isn't that like, isn't like that at all. The message of Jesus actually unifies all kinds of people and they can even retain aspects of their culture. That's not what's important. What's important is understanding that we're all saved by faith, by grace through faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. And we all recognize that we're broken no matter who we are. And so this is why it says in verse 24, so then the law was our guardian, that's what we talked about, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by what? Faith. So you believe and you're justified because of what Jesus did. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. There it is again, that word faith, over and over and over. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither no Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. That's a beautiful thing. Now why does he say there's neither Jew nor Greek or male or female? Is he saying that Kind of like now, like, oh, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. You can cross back and forth and do whatever you want. Like, they're just, no, 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 he's not saying that at all. He's talking about status and entry requirements. Because this idea that, that, that some of the Jewish people had that unless you were, were of Jewish, Jewish ethnicity, you know, you really weren't a child of the promise. You weren't part of the promised people, right? The chosen people. And if you were a man, you had higher status than a woman. Or if you were a free person, you had higher status than a slave. And you looked at society, you saw that. He goes, ain't about status in this kingdom, people. Everyone's on the same level. Everyone's in need of the shed blood of Christ to cover their sins. And you know what? There's probably no more important message that our culture needs to hear right now than that. Because we are bitterly divided. And it's so stupid. It is so dumb, and I see it tragically creeping in even to the Christian circles where all of a sudden everything's about race. And I'm like, have we forgotten? There's tiny, tiny little bits of difference in the amount of melanin that we have in our skin. And yet we're choosing to define ourselves or define other people and how they think and how they should vote and what they should believe and the things that they should do and what jobs they should have or whatever else based on the amount of melanin in their skin. The Bible has no place for that. The Bible turns everything on its head and said, says, listen, those things aren't important. There is a massive commonality that all of us share. And that is we are to live our lives in gratitude towards a God who does nothing but effusively and with amazing power show us his love. We're in our most desperate need. Guys, it's, it's not about any of that stuff. It's about faith. And so we're united in faith. And you know what? I, I hope that this church continues to be a place. And, and, and I just say this. I didn't say this in the other services either. Maybe because I think I have more time in this one. Sorry. They're like, oh no. Last time I'm coming to 1045. Um, but, you know, you, I, I hope, whatever race or background you are, I hope you look at me and you just don't care what race or background I am. 
Like I just, I didn't, I just born like a kind of not really that tan white dude, you know, sort of tan, I guess, because I live in the sun all the time, but well, I, who cares? So don't, don't look at me and go, he won't understand me because I'm Hispanic or I'm African-American. Maybe I won't understand all the things you've been through, but can I tell you something? We're more, we're more united than we, you think we are. Because my, I was face down in the gutter before God got a hold of me. And I can't read some of the stuff I've been preaching today. I can't read it and think about it in a coffee shop or whatever, in a public place without having to put my little sunglasses on or whatever because it brings, moves me to tears to think of where I would be without Jesus. Can we get past that stuff in this church? Let's get past that stuff, man. You and I, we had the blood of Jesus coursing through our veins. It makes us brothers and sisters. I don't care what color you are. So let me give you the bottom line. Make it so simple so there's no confusion. If I try to get right with God by my works, I will end up in hell. Do you hear that? Now, I want you to hear that properly because some of you guys think, well, really religious people are going to go to heaven because they're good. Nope, wrong, eh. Nope. If the really religious person thinks they're going to go to heaven because of the good things they've done, they will end up in hell because God will go, well, based on your standard, you have failed. And it's obvious to me and to you. No offense, but I cannot allow someone with your level of sin inside a kingdom. You would ruin the whole place. You'd bring down the property values and it would be terrible. It wouldn't be heaven anymore because you'd be there. And you'd be like, how great am I? No one likes to be around people like that, right? If I try to justify myself by my adherence to rules and regulations, I will lose every time. And I'm talking to my Catholic friends here for a minute. And those of you, because many of you guys came from a Catholic background. And I do not want to, don't hear this as offensive at all. I'm trying to be as gracious as possible. And I'm trying to be clear. Because many of you come from a Catholic background, and, and so you see everything through, you know, like, okay, I'm saved, like, just great. Jesus died on the cross, and that's a wonderful thing. But to be honest with you, that's not enough, right? Because you got to get baptized, or else. you got to go to First Communion, or else. you got to do your Hail, Mar- Hail Marys, or else. And no matter what, if you're a Catholic, you're going, I'm probably going to spend time, you know, some time in purgatory at least, right? You know? And have to be like a... I don't know. You got to do some kind of terrible job for 10,000 years or whatever, and then maybe, just maybe, you'll get out. It's a terrible thing. I don't see that in Scripture. And you know what's crazy to me? is like, you always hear the phrase Catholic guilt. Everyone's like, oh, Catholic guilt, right? You never hear, you ever hear Catholic joy? Man, I grew up, there's nothing but Catholic joy, right? Every single week we go to church. My grandma would drag me nothing but joy, 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 joy. Crammed down my throat all the time. Jesus loves you. He's paid for your sins fully on the cross. He wants you to live in gratitude for his grace. He wants you to treat you like a son and a daughter and be that father that you never had. It just was sickening, all the joy that was just shoved down my throat every single week. I hate it. Have you ever heard that in your life? No. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm trying to make a point. I never met anybody who says, oh, I'm a great Catholic, man. I'm killing this Catholic thing. I'm all about it. No. Well, what's so good about that? There's nothing in here that he's saying about that. It's the opposite. 
So that's the second thing. If I have faith in the promise of Jesus, then he stands in my place and I'm right with God and I inherit heaven. That's the reality. So the reason, listen, when I talked about you'd ruin the place, it's because we don't want to need a bunch of people in heaven walking around thinking, oh, God's fine, but I'm really great too. No, heaven is going to be so wonderful and earth can actually and should be actually and becomes more wonderful when it's full of people who live in gratitude for what they should not have received. And when you walk around blown away by the grace of God on your pathetic life, you will be a better neighbor and a better husband and a better wife and a better worker and a more gracious person on the freeway and a nicer person to your kids' teachers or whatever else. And you, you'll, be, you'll be somebody who, who doesn't abuse, who quits alcohol and all this kind of stuff. Not that you won't have struggles in your life, but you'll say, listen, if this is the kind of God who made me and redeemed me, I want to live my life knowing him and serving him and reflecting his goodness to other people because I'm living in complete awe of who he is. That's what brings good works, not fear of going to hell. So I read this quote from Charles Spurgeon and it deeply moved me. I got a little verklempt. Some of you are like, what does that mean? Sad. I'm getting old. If God be just, if God be just, I, a sinner alone and without a substitute, must be punished. He's right. But Jesus stands in my stead and is punished for me. And now, if God be just, I, a sinner, standing in Christ, can never be punished. There's that substitutionary atonement again. I love that. Never ever be punished because Jesus has stood in your place if God is just. I love this Citizens and Saints song. The lyrics say, though a poison should threaten to kill, I know my Savior reigns and when the breezes of death leave a chill, I got Jesus' blood in my veins. He said last week, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. And if Christ lives in you, the Father is not going to leave his son behind. Some of you guys facing terrible medical diagnoses and you're worried about what's going to happen when your last breath comes. And I will tell you, the blood of Jesus courses through your veins. You got nothing to worry about, my friend. This guy, Jocko Willink, has a podcast. I like Jocko Willink. He fires me up, man. He tells a story about soldiers in Vietnam. And they got ambushed by the North Vietnamese. And one of them was laying out badly wounded in the brush under hail of gunfire. His very close friend was in the trench with his commanding officer and he sees his buddy wounded on the ground. He begs his commanding officer, sir, please, let me get him. Please, sir, let me get him. The officer hesitates, but knowing the bond that the two of them have, the closeness of their friendship, he says, You can go, 
but I'm going to tell you right now, it's not worth it. Your buddy is probably dead, and you could very likely die trying to save him. Hearing this, the soldier went anyway. And he goes out into the field, into the brush, and he lifts his friend onto his shoulders and miraculously staggers under heavy fire back to the trench. And he lays his friend on the ground. And the officer, with sadness and tenderness in his eyes, looks at the soldier and says, See, I told you. It wasn't worth it. Your buddy is dead, and now you are, ble- you are badly wounded. And the soldier says, I know. But you're wrong. It was worth it. Because right before he died, he looked at me, and he said, I knew you'd come. Why was it worth it? Because that man needed to know before he died that there was someone willing to give his life to rescue him. He needed to see that that was true in the world and there was nothing more his buddy wanted to do than to prove to him that you are loved, man, that you're not alone. I'm coming to get you. And that love was powerful enough to risk the hail of gunfire. Before you die, you need to know that there was someone willing to give their life for you. That you're that important. That your life matters that much. You need to know that someone cares about you. That God sent his son to come after you and rescue you. That that is true about you and it is true about the universe, and it is true about his love for you. So where are you at? Are you going to yield your life to the gospel, or are you going to keep trying to do and do and do and do, trying to impress some God that quite frankly doesn't even exist the way you think he does? I want to give you an opportunity to do business with him. Let's pray. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you're here today and you would like to become a child of promise, a son, a daughter of Abraham, a son, a daughter of God, it's not about all the great things you've done and quite frankly, you can be released from all the horrible things that you've done, even if the rest of the world holds them against you. And so if you're here today and you're ready to make that commitment, I would just ask you to, in your head, just say to God, God, I believe. And I don't want to leave this world without the knowledge and the peace of knowing that you have come. That you came for me. Because I'm bleeding in the field. And I know I got nothing on my own. And so with repentance in my heart, with gratitude in my soul, that God, you would take me even as I am. 
I believe in you. I place my faith in you and my trust in you. I want to be one of your children. I know I could never earn my way to heaven. Thank you that you are the one who gets the glory and praise, not me. You are a God who saves. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for Him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time.